Well, once again, good evening. It feels like uh, when we start meetings like this, it feels like uh, Friday night, but it's Thursday. And it's amazing to see so many people together on a Thursday night. And so I'm just glad you guys have all um, come out uh, to support Amen as we are back on the East Coast. Let's tell you a story that actually just happened to me. Um, didn't actually happen to me, it happened to my partner, but about two weeks ago, um, Lindy and I and Andy and Bob had been at a wedding in Portugal and I came back, so it was within the last two weeks. Um, um, came back on a, I guess, Sunday night. On Tuesdays, I usually do TAVR procedures, which is replacement of the aortic valve through a catheter. And so I had done my first case and my second case, but I, the team said, okay, we're going to grab some lunch, but we'll be back right at such and such a time and we'll be ready to go. So right at that time, I walked in, and my patient was in the room. They were in the, on the gurney, and, uh, but there was nobody else in the room. There was the nurse anesthetist, and there was the, um, the nurse anesthetist, and there was also um, one nurse. And usually for a TAVR procedure, there are at least a dozen to 15 people in the room. And the room looked like a ghost town. And I was like, uh, what's going on? And they said, oh, we're holding. There's a problem down in room one. Well, a problem is you never know what that means. <clears throat> you have no idea. But So I walked down to room one in our cath lab, and that's like four rooms down, walked in to find my colleague and about 15 people, including most of my team, trying to desperately to resuscitate and stabilize a patient on the table. The surgeon that was working with me was there talking to my partner. The OR team was standing around wondering if they should start getting out the instruments and what we we're going to do next. The anesthesiologist that was working on my case was at the head of the bed, and he had just intubated the patient. <clears throat> they, my, there were three of our fellows in there doing various tasks. The echotech that was supposed to support supposed to support my team, was also in there um, doing an echo. And so what I could piece together as I walked in is that here was a 32-year-old young lady on the cath lab table. She had come into the hospital after experiencing pressure-like pain in her chest for the last three days. And so, yeah, her EKG showed ST elevations, but it also showed Q waves. Her troponin was going up over 50,000 already, and so probably most of the damage was already done. And you're at this quandary, do we just ride it out, or do we try to salvage any muscle that we can? A year or two ago, her ejection fraction was noted to be around 40%, and when they had gotten her in here, it was around 20% before they did the case. And uh, now when she, in the middle of all this, um, it was uh, even less. They had good intentions. Um, they thought they'd do what they could, and because she was so young, they decided to complete it. And everything actually went well. They placed two stents, they opened up her LAD, they restored the blood flow in her coronary artery, and uh, just as they were getting ready to transfer her off the cath lab table to the gurney, her blood pressure started going down rather quickly, and then all of a sudden she coded. She cardiac arrested on the table. They got her back over to where they were. They started CPR. The anesthesiologist came over from my room and they intubated her. The surgeon was in there debating whether or not we should um, go on, on the heart-lung machine, the pump that we call ECMO. But what they decided to do is go ahead and put an impella in, 
which is a uh, left ventricular assist device. And uh, they uh, did everything practically that they could. The Echotech came in real quick and did an echo, and it looked like there was blood around the heart in the pericardium. And so they quickly put in a pericardial drain, and they started aspirating blood and then giving it back. And as they did that, they got a rhythm back. They got a blood pressure back. It seemed to be working. And so now they had to decide what to do. Everybody was already in the room, and there wasn't really much for me to do, so I said, I know what, I'll go talk to the family. And so I went out to the waiting room to find that the only family that she had was a 78-year-old grandmother who was in a wheelchair, who had her own health problems, Um, obese, arthritic, um, not very capable. It turns out the grandmother was actually already at the hospital visiting the patient in our cath lab's older brother who was admitted with a drug overdose. And in fact, she lost two other brothers to overdoses already. It's a very dysfunctional family. The patient that was on the table had actually been trying hard to overcome drugs, and she'd been in a methadone maintenance program, and for the last two years, as far as the grandmother knew, she'd been clean. She'd struggled with depression. Now, here's the hardest part. She had tried to start a new life. She had a six-month-old son named Jackson. And the family did not know who the father was, and there was no other family. When I came back to the lab, they had placed a TEE probe down and got a better look at the heart. And uh, it showed not just that there was a perforation causing the blood to fill up around the pericardium, but there was actually a rupture of the myocardium. And now the question, is there anything that we can do? The surgical team, surgeon said, we can open this up, but if we even just try to sew, it's just going to rip, it's going to tear, there's nothing to sew to I do structural heart procedures, so they said, can you put a plug in there? Can you do anything to seal this? And I'm like, no, it's just going to rip out. So the problem is, is that when you open up an artery into an area that has recently infarcted more than a few hours, but within the last few days, and now you restore the blood flow to that area, it just turns to mush. And there really isn't much to do. We didn't think that she could be a candidate for heart transplant or an LBAD because she'd gotten CPR for over 30 minutes. We weren't sure what, her, what, what that condition was going to be. She wasn't going to be a heart transplant program with her drug history. And uh, it just became obvious there wasn't much to do. Now her heart was squeezing less than 10%. In addition, she was quite acidotic. Been a couple of rounds of CPR. And so things didn't look too good. So I started observing my colleague in the text at the cath lab table. My colleague's not a Christian, but he sat there as long as he could. He thought about everything possible. He asked all of us anything else that we can do. He talked to the surgeon, and it just became painfully obvious that there was no hope. They could aspirate the blood, and they could give it back, but it wasn't going to fix the problem. And so... One by one, people started slipping out the back door. The surgeon split. The OR team followed. The anesthesiologist ducked out the back. Um, Pretty soon, it was back down to the original team. And with tears in their eyes, as they'd given up and realized there's nothing more that was going to make a difference, they stopped aspirating the blood. They dialed down the left ventricular assist device 
It was clear that the situation was hopeless, and they felt horrible. There wasn't a dry eye in the room. They didn't want to stop, but there was absolutely nothing they could do, no hope. As I sat here and and watched the scenario unfold, I couldn't help but think, in many ways, this is the same situation that God finds himself in. Our world really is on life support. It seems that a knowledge of God is slipping away, and many souls are already hopelessly lost. Many are following close behind, but God will not give up while there is any hope. Could there be just one more soul? Is there still hope for our world? And so he hangs on. And so 2 Peter 3.9 states that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but he is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God's response to his people is like he said in the Old Testament, how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? My heart churns within me. My sympathy is stirred. After all, these are the people that he died for, the people that he loves, and the people that he wants to completely restore. And so he hopes he still has faith. And God has promised to have a remnant in the very last days of this earth's history who will respond to his drawing power, to his selfless love, And so far, God's people seem distracted, unconcerned, preoccupied with lesser things. What is he to do? And so he continues the life support. He keeps sending messages of hope. He tries to arouse the workers in the hope that they will catch on and that they will go and warn the world. And this isn't a new problem that he's facing. So tonight I want to reflect on our church, which we believe was raised up in the end time to be a prophetic voice to the people around us. God has people in all the churches, all around the world, that he wants to warn and that he wants to call out. And so tonight I want to encourage us all to do the work that God has called us to do. After all, that's why we are here at an amen conference. Testimonies to Ministers, page uh, 50. The church is the depository of the wealth of the riches of the grace of God. And through the church, eventually will be made manifest the final and full display of the love of God to the world that is to be lightened with its glory. The prayer of Christ that his church may be one as he was one with his Father will finally be answered. The rich dowry of the Holy Spirit will be given, and through its constant supply to the people of God, they will become witnesses to the world of the power of God unto salvation. This is what the Seventh-day Adventist Church was called into existence for, including all of you and me, healthcare workers. We have a special commission to warn the world. And as we just read in Testimonies to Ministers, God hasn't given up. He knows that he is going to have a final generation that will do that. It may seem that time has dragged on, and it has. 
It may seem that we are wandering in the wilderness, and we have been, but it will not be the case forever. God will have a people who cooperate with him to finish the work. And the good news is that it could be us. Ellen White has an important quote that might be good for us to reflect on. She's speaking about the last time that the Holy Spirit was, was being poured out in our church over 100 years ago. And in Evangelism, page 693, this was written in 1901, she states that we may have to remain here in this world because of insubordination many more years, as did the children of Israel. But for Christ's sake, his people should not add sin to sin by charging God with the consequences of their own wrong course of action. Ultimately, we have a role in whether or not the work of giving the third angel's messages to the world occurs in our generation. We can be the final generation. This doesn't have to go on. Let's look at a little bit of history. Seventh-day Adventists understand that the messages to the seven churches have a double meaning. They were addressed to the seven churches of Asia Minor, but we believe that they also have a historical um, symbolic meaning that correlates with the stages of history. And so we're going to look a little bit at Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And they parallel, the seven churches parallel the seven seals and the seven trumpets. And so if you have your Bibles, in a little bit we're going to wind up turning to Revelation chapter 2 and then ultimately chapter 3 to a passage that we all know very well. So the first church listed in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, is Ephesus. It corresponds to the apostolic period that occurred right after the ascension of Christ till about 100 A.D. Followed by this was the church of Smyrna. Church of Smyrna suffered intense persecution until about the rise of Constantine in around 323. Next, we have the church in Pergamos. It was a period of great apostasy. We call it the falling of way, and the Dark Ages started occurring shortly after this. But this occurred in 323 to 530. This is the period of the time when the papacy arose, and it took on secular authority, and when the Sabbath was changed from Sabbath observance to Sunday observance. Next, we go to Thyatira, which is known as the church in the wilderness when God's people had to flee out into the mountains like the Waldensians that lived in the mountain valleys. And this ended right around uh, 517 with the rise of the Reformation, the period that was represented by Sardis, which begins with the Protestant Reformation and extends to about 1800. The next church, the one that we all wish we were a part of, is Philadelphia the Church of the Great Awakening that included the Millerite movement and the early Adventists that were looking for Jesus to come. And the very last church on the world stage at the very end of time until Jesus returns in the cause of glory is Laodicea. Ellen White identified that we as Seventh-day Adventists entered the Laodicean condition as early as 1956. 1856. See, she's got my back. And it doesn't end until shortly before the second coming. 
I'm sure we would rather identify with Philadelphia, but that time has passed, and we are indeed Laodicean. Of these churches, the church of Smyrna, which experienced intense persecution, and the church of Philadelphia are the only two that didn't receive a rebuke. And there is only one church that doesn't get a commendation. Which one? Laodicea. The rebukes that Jesus gives his church and gives his people are sent. They're strong, but they're sent with tenderness and love. And they're offered in hope as he speaks to us down through the ages. It's clear that Laodicea does not know its true condition. So in uh, early writings, page 270, Ellen White states that I saw that the testimony of the true witness, who's the true witness? The one that is speaking about the seven churches has not been half-heated. The solemn testimony upon which the destiny of the church hangs has been lightly esteemed, if not entirely disregarded. This testimony must work deep repentance. All who truly receive it will obey it and be purified. And then another quote that we're all very familiar with, Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself in his church. When the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. Christ Object Lessons, page 69. This can't be forced. Only by love is love awakened. So let's look at the Laodicean message. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. You can look at your tablet, your smartphone. And just for a few minutes, let's take a look at this. So Revelation chapter 3. Um, it's addressed to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans. Down in verse 15, he says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So what's the problem with not being warm, hot or cold? Kind of getting thirsty, actually. So, You ever try to drink water that's just kind of lukewarm? You know what? Actually... I didn't get a chance to open this, but one of our board members, Dr. Chung, gives us all a gift, our board members a gift, when we have our board meeting, which we did this afternoon. And uh, even as a kid, I like to know what was in a package, so I haven't unwrapped mine, but this might be a good time to do that. I saw somebody else have it, but theirs was, wow, theirs was white, and it had, it had, letters on it. It actually said amen. This one's black. But I know. I'm just going to dump some water in here. Oh, your mug changes color. So let's try this. I've got some water. I've had this out here for a little while. Actually all afternoon. I'm going to pour it in the mug. This is what I saw everybody else doing with theirs. How come my mug is not changing color? Any ideas? I dumped water in it. 
All right, Liz, I need your help. Let's see. I thought I came prepared. There it is. She's thinking, uh-oh, what are you going to do with the water? All right, so she's been cooking water over there. <laughs> oh, yeah, this water is steaming. This water is hot. It's trickling out. No, oh, keep going. Uh-oh, I already see that it's changing. Now, I wasn't planning on doing this. This just happened this afternoon. But it was an illustration too good to pass up. There we go. Thank you. Oh, no, that's plenty. <laughs> so this is the perfect demonstration in your teacup. When you pour lukewarm water in, it's dark. It doesn't reflect. It doesn't say life. It doesn't say amen. But when you have hot water, it's glowing. Can you guys all see that? Oh, wow, it's up on the screen. I don't know what I'm going to do with that. Hopefully I won't knock it over. But I will set it right there. And hopefully that will stay hot until Jesus comes. But you get the idea of what John is talking about here. Nobody wants to drink lukewarm water. It's better to drink something, a hot substance, or coal. And so this is speaking to us that we are like this water. We're just lukewarm, and we're not glowing. We're dark, and we're dusky. And it continues because not only that, I had the big print on my... But not only that, it goes on. Because you say I am rich and have been enriched and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me. Now, wait a minute. This is God's last church at the very close of time. And he, Jesus, speaking to his bride, says, you are what? Wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. The Seventh-day Adventist church, as far as churches go, is one of the wealthiest churches. So what's he talking about? In fact, maybe because we're so wealthy, we try to look to ourselves and we rely on ourselves. But that's not the kind of riches that he's talking about. And so he says, I counsel you, buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. Can you imagine being God's last day church and thinking that we have an end time message to give to the world and the reality is we are like the emperor who has no clothes. And we are the only ones that don't know it. That is what he is saying about our spiritual condition. But yet he counsels us and to receive the eyesalve that you may see. Now the white raiment symbolizes the righteousness of Christ. The ISAV is the anointing of the Holy Spirit so we can discern. And what I want to focus on tonight 
is the gold that's tried in the fire. When this message is finally received, it will produce a people who are clothed with the righteousness of Christ and who have the divine eyes out. And they'll have the gold that's tried in the fire, which is identified as faith and love. Now the White and Fourth Testimony said, faith and love are the true riches, the pure gold which the true witness counsels the lukewarm to buy. However rich we may be in earthly treasure, and we are, we are very blessed people, all our wealth will not enable us to buy the precious remedies that cure the disease of the soul called lukewarmness. Intellect, earthly riches were powerless to remove the defects of the Laodicean church or to remedy their deplorable condition. So how can we generate this love? We can't. It is only a gift from God. It comes from beholding him. We love him because he first loved us. And so we can't, but Christ has worked out this exchange. Desire of Ages, page 25, Christ was treated as we deserve, that we might be treated as he deserves. He was condemned for our sins in which he had no share, that we might be justified by his righteousness in which we had no share. He suffered the death which was ours that we might receive the life which was his. With his stripes, we are healed. God is going to have a people, a final generation that heed the counsel of the true witness. There will be a whole generation of physicians, dentists, nurses, physician assistants, nurse practitioners, physical therapists, healthcare workers. In fact, it will also include pastors. And not only that, it's God's plan that it includes every single Seventh-day Adventist member. It will demonstrate the love of Christ. It's not the kind of love that this world knows. It's the love of Christ. In the videos that you saw earlier about doing free clinics, it's just amazing to see people's hearts respond when they understand that a group of healthcare workers are giving up time from their practice, giving up time from making money on their own, and serving them for free. It melts their heart and it opens the door for them to understand the gospel. God is looking for a group of physicians, dentists, and healthcare workers that will be like Moses. Moses was that great and yet humble leader of Israel who back in Exodus 33, 32, argued with God, if you can't forgive this people, blot me out of your book. Why would Moses care about these people so much? They threatened to stone him. They laughed and scoffed at his wife. At times they hated him. But Moses had the love of Christ. Moses loved those people more than he loved himself. And in fact, he was willing to be blotted out if it would mean their salvation. That is an amazing love. And so he interceded 
for the Israelites. Like Paul, who said, I would be a curse for my brethren, the Jews, if it would mean their salvation. Paul was willing to give up his eternal life. Now, Paul and Moses could have given up their eternal life, but it wouldn't have saved the Jews. But Jesus went all the way to the cross. Desire of Ages says he could not see through the portals of the tomb. Hope did not present to him his coming forth of the grave, a conqueror. Jesus, when facing the weight of the sin of the whole world, had always counted on this relationship with his father. And now when he can't feel his father's presence, he feels that he might not come through this. That sin is so bad that he might be making an eternal sacrifice. And yet he made up his mind that he would save you and me, no matter what the cost to himself. That is the love of Christ. Do you want that kind of love? It will cost us everything. But it's not really a sacrifice when you give up something that gives you far more. By repentance, by confession, by reformation, and by beholding him, we will become changed. So for the next few minutes, let's just look at how this affects medical ministry. The right arm of the gospel, the right arm of the three angels' messages is the medical ministry work. And God has ordained that this be a key part of the closing work. Medical ministry, page 237. I wish to speak about the relation existing between the medical missionary work and the gospel ministry. We have a few pastors here, and I wish we had many more, but it's hard for them to get away on the weekend on Sabbath. But it has been presented to me that every department of the work is to be united in one great whole. The work of God is to prepare a people to stand before the Son of Man at his coming. And this work should be a unit. The work that is to fit a people to stand firm in the last great day must not be a divided work. And again, she says in medical ministry, there is to be no division between the ministry and the medical work. The physician should labor equally with the minister and with as much earnestness and thoroughness for the salvation of the soul as well as the restoration of the body. Now, we've been pretty good at our Adventist hospitals to sometimes pray with our patients, but we have chaplains to do that most of the time. And so when somebody has a spiritual need, you call the chaplain, right? This is calling for us to be the chaplain. And so to be so blended that when there's a spiritual condition, we are able to minister to the spiritual condition. Just as much as we've been trained to minister to the physical condition. Now, I already know the answer. You don't need to, to answer it. But how much time did you spend in medical school learning all about the physical condition? That was like that much, right? Lots and lots and lots of time. How much time did you learn, spend 
with the spiritual condition. That's why God has raised up, amen, at this time in earth's history. He wants to restore the love of Christ that reaches hearts. And he wants to use us, all of us in this room, every healthcare worker that is tuned in and watching this on our live stream, he wants to use us as a vital part of finishing the three angels' messages. So my work as a physician doesn't stop when I put a step in somebody's heart. I need to also minister to their spiritual heart. I need to minister to their spiritual condition. And I need to know the Bible prophecies. I need to understand Revelation and Daniel. But more importantly than that, I need to know the gospel. And I need to live it out in my life. Loma Linda Messages, page 59. I want to tell you that when the gospel ministry ministers and the medical missionary workers are not united, there is placed on our churches the worst evil that can be placed there. Where did the alpha of, of apostasy start? In one of our sanitariums. When there's not a blending and instead we're separated, the worst possible evil. We must come together. This is a breach that has existed between healthcare workers and the ministry for far too long. And God has raised up, amen, in other ministries like it to help bring this unity back for the final conflict. The 1888 materials on White states that the truth for this time, the third angel's message is to be proclaimed with a loud voice, which means with increasing power as we approach the great final test. This test must come to the churches in connection with the true medical missionary work, a work that has the great physician to dictate and to preside in all it comprehends. We're not just to restore this to our practices. We're to help restore this to our churches. Imagine if every single church was a lifestyle center, was a sanitarium of sorts, a place that people in the community could come and be healed by learning the principles of health. Councils on Health. Christ was the savior of the world. During his life on earth, the sick and the afflicted ones were objects of his special compassion. When he sent out his disciples, he commissioned them to heal the sick as well as to preach the gospel. When he sent forth the 70, he commanded them to heal the sick and next to preach the, that the kingdom of God had come onto them. Their physical health was to be first cared for in order that the way might be prepared for the truth to reach their minds. We're pretty good at taking care of their physical needs. We do a good job, but do we stop there? Do we go on the next step to treat the way, now that we've opened the door and prepared the way to reach their minds with the gospel? The medical missionary work 
should be a part of the work of every church in our land. Disconnected from the church, it would soon become a strange medley of disorganized atoms. Have we seen that happen? Healthcare centers doing what they want to do, our physicians off over there and doing something else, and, and the churches are struggling to give the gospel. It would consume and not produce. Instead of acting as God's helping hand to forward his truth, it would sap the life force from the church and weaken the message. There's something amazing about bringing the two together. I have been able to get my patients to stop smoking from about 15% of the time to over 90% of the time when I encourage them through prayer and I encourage them through the power that's in God's word that they can be overcomers. The gospel gives power to the healing ministry. But in the same way, the healing ministry protects and defends and strengthens the gospel. We already saw that it opens the door to people's hearts. It opens the door to the community. It puts us in a good standing. The mayor comes out. The TV crews come out and make stories about what people are doing. Can you believe it? There's a group of physicians and dentists volunteering their time. That's unheard of. And so it protects and it builds up the gospel. She continues that con conducted independently, it would not only consume talent, but it, it means needed in their other lines, but in the very work of helping the helpless apart from the ministry of the world. Sorry, the ministry of the word. It would place men where they would scoff at Bible truth. What's the meaning of that? I think I broke that into two slides, sorry. So what is the meaning of that? It would, in the very work of helping the helpless, apart from the ministry of the word, it would place men where they would scoff at the Bible truth. Are we creating scoffers when we take credit for what God is doing through medical ministry? Are we creating scoffers when we say, oh, we got a scientific method to cure your disease? and not include that God is the source of all healing. Maybe. Maybe we're making people even farther away from receiving the gospel. And that's a really scary thought. I wish to say that the medical missionary work is God's work. Take hold of the medical missionary work it will give you access to the people. Their hearts will be touched as you minister to their necessities. As you relieve their sufferings, you will find opportunity to speak to them of the love of Christ. Councils on Health, 533. So as healthcare workers, we are not called to just do a humanitarian work. Our amen clinics are not supposed to be humanitarian clinics. There's lots of organizations out there that do that. Amen. Now, and, and, and Jesus himself says, the poor you'll have with us always. There will be plenty of opportunities for humanitarian work, but the power of connecting the medical ministry with the three angels' message is that they don't just add, they multiply. It becomes explosive. You have people asking, why do you do this? Who are you people? I want to be a member of your church. 
They're open to the gospel. And so we cannot neglect. It's really the secret weapon that God has to empower the message to go around the world in the last days. So take hold of the medical work. As you relieve the sufferings, you will find opportunity to speak to them of the love of Jesus. So, we must do everything that we can to combine these two. It's ministering not to just their physical needs, but their spiritual needs, and pointing them to the Savior as the only source of true healing. When, when we can love like Jesus loved, like Moses loved, like Paul loved, we will intercede like Moses interceded. We will intercede like Jesus intercedes with us. We will be like the prophet Daniel, who in Daniel chapter 8 identified himself with his people and said, we have sinned. Lord, please forgive our iniquities. There's not one record of Daniel committing a sin. And yet he is interceding for his people. He's interceding that the prophecies will be fulfilled in the end time. Do you know what it's like to intercede for a patient? When you'd be willing to give up your own salvation for them, that is the love of Christ. That is an impossibly high calling for a human being. And yet that's what God's last generation will be willing to do. We will be, it's not a work that we do. Christ in us will crucify the flesh, will set us free from our selfishness, and will allow us to have a burden for souls that we have never had before. I don't just want to pray with my patients anymore. I want to do Bible studies. There's nothing better than to see my patient baptized in the baptistry as a result of praying with them and studying with them and getting them hooked up with classes at our church and then then getting connected with the church members. And this is a work that the whole church can unite upon. And when we do that, we will change our communities and the gospel will spread like wildfire. When this happens, very quickly the world will be warned of the impending judgment that is to come in the first angel's message. People will be drawn not by argument, but by example. They will see, we will see people actually flocking out of Babylon as the second message is given in its proper, proper call. And very, very quickly there will be two groups of people forming. Those who get the seal of God and keep the Sabbath and those who refuse to and get the mark of the beast. God will have a people who will keep his commandments, a people who will have the faith of Jesus. Where will this lead? To a spirit of intercession. In visions of the night, representations passed before me of a great reformatory movement among God's people. Many were praising God. The sick were healed, and other miracles were wrought, 
a spirit of intercession was seen, even as was manifested before the great day of Pentecost. Hundreds and thousands were seen visiting families and opening before them the word of God. How many? Hundreds and thousands. In your church today, how many members are actively engaged in visiting people and giving Bible studies? But this is hundreds and thousands seen visiting families and opening before them the word of God. God's word is where the power is. Hearts were convicted by the power of the Holy Spirit. And a spirit of genuine conversion was manifest. On every side, doors were open. They were thrown open to the proclamation of the truth. The world seemed to be lightened with the heavenly influence. This is what Revelation 18 predicts is going to happen. And I am more and more convinced than ever that this is going to happen as a result of combining the medical ministry with the gospel ministry. And it will have power that, she says, throws open the doors to the proclamation of truth. That is what we need. My wife thinks I'm a little presumptuous, but I expect to see miracles happening very soon. I would love to see Marianne Knudsen, who was at Amen this last year in her wheelchair, jump out because of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And I expect that that could happen very, very soon. I'm waiting to see my brother-in-law Bob's vision restored. And we all know Dr. Norm McNulty, who was up here with a splint on his hand, and unfortunately, about a year ago, he had a tragic fall down the stairs and shattered his arm and completely destroyed the radial nerve so that he cannot lift his hand. Now, he's had a, a nerve transplant. The nerve was completely severed. And I've uh, talked to Norm about this, that I really believe that as a member of Amen, God didn't cause him to have this accident. But I believe that God wants to use Norm's right hand as an example to the rest of us. I believe that God is going to restore Norm's use of his hand. It's just a question of when. Big miracles like miraculous healings do not occur when the church is lukewarm. Big miracles occur when the Holy Spirit is being poured out and is not being kept back so that the Holy Spirit can work. And there was a time 100 years ago when the Holy Spirit was, going to be, was being poured out and our board studied this at our board retreat where even a man that had no eyeballs in his sockets received his sight as an outpouring manifestation of the power of the Holy Spirit. I believe that God will use Norm as a Living parable. Do we have a problem with our right arm? Not as big a problem for those of you who are here because we're beginning to recognize it, but our right arm needs to be restored. We need the miracle of the Holy Spirit to restore medical, medical ministry to the three angels' messages. And this is going to happen, and it's going to result in the latter rain. We need the refreshing of the latter rain. This will only come by earnest prayer. 
repentance, confession. And if we sit around and wait until we see the manifestation of Norm's hand or we see the manifestation of the right arm healed, like the, like the five foolish virgins, it will be too late. Now is the time to be entering into a very personal experience. Now is the time where we are being called personally and individually to spend the time in prayer fasting in prayer, to spend the time reflecting and repenting. And if we do this, he will see us through. Jesus wouldn't have sent the message in Revelation 3 to the Laodicean church if he didn't love us. And he's going to see us through. The great work of the gospel is not to close with less manifestation of the power of God than marked its opening. The prophecies which were fulfilled in the outpouring of the former rain at the, at the outpouring of the former rain at the opening of the gospel are again to be fulfilled in the latter rain, its close. Here are the times of refreshing to which the apostle Peter looked forward when he said, Repent! Ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. When the time of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord, and he shall send Jesus. Miracles will be wrought. The sick will be healed. And signs and wonders will follow the believers. Now Satan will do miracles in the last days too. So we're warned that the the physical amazing miracles may actually have to be cut short. And more likely we'll be relying on the eight laws of health and natural remedies. Lindy and I and Andy and Bob were just at a wedding in Portugal, but we were able to go over to Spain, to Seville, where there's the chapel, the royal chapel in Seville, Spain, where Catholics believe the body of Ferdinand III is at rest been there for over 600 years, and he's called the uncorrupted um, king. His body has not decomposed in the slightest, not from any special embalming. In fact, legend has it that every year they have to go in and cut his hair. Satan is able to do miracles in the last days. And so there's one thing that Satan cannot duplicate, Which miracle can he not duplicate? I hear different things. He cannot duplicate the demonstration of selfless love that God will be putting in his people. That is what's going to turn the world upside down. The message will be carried not so much by argument as by the deep conviction of the Spirit of God. The arguments have been presented, the seed has been sown, and now it will spring up and bear fruit. Sorry. The seed has been sown, and now it will spring up and bear fruit. Now the rays of light penetrate everywhere. The truth is seen in its clearness, and the honest children of God sever the bonds which have held them. Notwithstanding the agencies combined against the truth, a large number take their stand upon the Lord's side. It's amazing to me 
picking up with a story that I begin with at the end. The 32-year-old passed away, leaving a six-month-old to his rather uh, diseased 78-year-old grandmother. But it inspired a demonstration of love. I didn't know it until literally three days ago when I got an email from one of our nurses named Ashley. And it just went around saying, I want to thank all of you, all the people that work in my cath lab, the nurses, the x-ray techs. She had been inspired to say, we need to do something for this family. And so she raised funds, over $1,200, and they bought over a year's and a half worth of diapers and other things for this baby. And they collected things on the right-hand side. And uh, it just warmed my heart to realize that the work in the end is not going to be won by argument. It's not going to be won by us having more persuasive arguments. It's going to be won by a manifestation of love. God is going to have a final generation of intercessors like Moses. In God's final generation, the 144,000 will have the same kind of love for God's people. In fact, for people, because they're all God's people. And only they will join and sing the song of Moses in the Lamb. And so as I reflect over my experience with Amen these past 18 years, I am grateful for what God has done in my life. And I'm grateful for how God has been leading Amen. He has been leading me on a journey that is designed to take my eyes off of myself, off of pursuing my career, off of pursuing my selfish ambition, and instead changing little by little my practice into a ministry. And God has brought amen through many changes in leadership. Through financial crisis and recently through COVID, we've had lots of growing pains. But I've been amazed to see how God has kept his hand on amen. And how he's been raising up amen chapters all around the world. He is on the move. This is the time when the world needs to see a demonstration. This is the time when the right arm needs to be restored. A blending of the gospel and medical ministries into a perfect unity that has not been seen since the days of the apostles. This will truly provide more abundant life. If your heart's been warmed and you want to be a part of restoring the right arm, then I'd invite you to stand and let's pray. Father in heaven, we see tragedies all around us, souls going off into eternity, and sometimes despite all that, my heart is still strangely cold. My love is cold. But Father, you have promised that you will have a people in the very last days that buy of you gold tried in the fire. 
love that is mixed with faith. And we believe that that love will transform our world. It will crystallize the battle that's going on between truth and error. And so, Lord, we believe that time is now and that you can use us this final, to be this final generation of witnesses to the world. Everyone that has stood has a desire to be used, Lord. We pray that each of us will commit to that work of earnest prayer, confession, and repentance, and that there will truly be a revival that will shake this world. Let it start with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.